Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 21 of the Biome Podcast. I'm Graham, and this is the podcast all about zoology and ecology. We'd like to thank everyone who purchased merchandise recently. Over half of all the profits from the merchandise are going to save this sorry, saving the survivors rhino rescue. If you haven't purchased your merchandise yet, be sure to check out our store at thebiompodcast.com. We have more collections dropping soon as well, so sign up for our newsletter and you, that way you won't miss a thing. We actually just received some sample merchandise and it looks really good. Very happy with it. Now, let's look at the trivia questions. In the last episode, I asked a trivia question. Are there poisonous snakes? The answer to that is no. Instead, if you remember episode four of the podcast, all the way back 17 episodes ago, where we spoke about the difference between venom and poison. Poison is a toxin that has to be ingested by the animal. That is going to be damaged by it, whereas venom is injected by another animal. This means that snakes are venomous and generally not poisonous, unless you eat a snake, in which case that's probably not the best idea. Anyway, um, this week I would like to congratulate Teresa Holmes, Amanda Wayhill and Garrett Utala for getting the right answer. If you are one of the first three to answer correctly, I'll give you a shout out on the next episode. So make sure you get your answers in. As for this week's trivia question, let's see who can answer it. Make sure you include your name in the email as well as your answer, obviously. You can also go to www.thebiompodcast.com and use the contact form on the site to submit your answer. Now, for the question. If an animal is crepuscular, what does that mean? Be sure to send your answers to questions at thebiompodcast.com or again, you can go to www.thebiompodcast.com and use the contact form. If an animal is crepuscular, what does that mean? I just wanted to remind you that you can visit the site and sign up for our newsletters so you don't miss a single episode or you can read our field notes while you're there. So, let's jump straight into today's show. Animal Spotlight, the section where we dive into the lives of a species on this planet and explore what life means to them. This week we'll be looking at the largest member of the dolphin family, the somewhat misnamed killer whale, or orca. I say somewhat misnamed because, as I mentioned earlier, it is actually a dolphin and not a whale. Now, orcas have held a strong place in society. My personal first memories come from watching Free Willy. Then, in the early 2010s, with the release of the documentary Blackfish, they rose to prominence again. So, let's start with a description of these incredible and intelligent creatures. Like a lot of mammals, orcas are sexually dimorphic, meaning they, the different sexes are distinguishable. In orcas, this difference is size. 
The males are generally larger, usually growing to a length of about 6 to 8 meters or about 20 to 26 feet, and they weigh in excess of 6 tons. The females, on the other hand, usually grow to a length of about 5 to 7 meters or about 16 to 23 feet and weigh about 3 to 3.5 tons. This or their characteristic black and white coloration is actually, at least partly, camouflage. They're dark or black on top and white on the bottom. This means that when viewed from above, the black coloration blends in well with the deep view of the void that you get in deep water. However, when you look at from below, the white underbelly blends in well with the bright surface water. Due to their coloration and size, orcas aren't easily mistaken for other dolphins or whales. Despite how iconic they are though, they have been split into various types, which might become separate subspecies or even distinct species once they have been studied a bit more. Now, the Antarctic population is estimated to number somewhere around 25,000 individuals, and it is divided into four types. The Antarctic population obviously spends most of the time around the Antarctic. Now, the first type is the type A, also known as the Antarctic orca. They look like your regular orca and feed primarily on minke whales. Type B orcas are smaller than type A's and their coloration is more medium gray than the usual black. The white is also more yellowish in hue, which could be from living in water that is richer in diatoms than the other types. The type B white patch just behind the eye is also significantly larger than the type A. Now if we remember type A is your average looking orca, Type B has a much larger white patch just behind the eye. These whales also seem to feed, well, these whales, these orcas seem to feed more on seals than other whales, or than whales. It's just so easy making that mistake. They, then they also have a type C. They are the smallest type of the Antarctic orcas. They also live in noticeably larger groups than the other types of Antarctic orcas. Like the type Bs, they are a medium gray, while the white patches have a yellow tinge as well. This, again, could be due to the high levels of diatoms in their waters. Diatoms are a type of plankton. The white patch behind the eye, though, is a lot slimmer and slants down towards the mouth, rather than just being a uh, uh, oval patch on the skin. The type C is also known to feed on Antarctic cod, which is obviously a type of fish, and not on seals or on uh, minke whales. Now, the last type of Antarctic orca is the type D, and these are also relatively new to science at least and they are also known as the sub-Antarctic orca. They are usually found between the latitudes of 40 degrees south and 60 degrees south. They have distinctively small white patch behind their eyes as well as a much more bulbous head, which looks more like a pilot whale than a regular orca. They also have much smaller teeth, although I don't think much 
many people would use that to distinguish this type. If your average person is close enough to see the teeth of an orca, I think figuring out what type of animal it is would probably not be on the top of the list of things to do. A characteristic that might be used is the fact that the type D has a much smaller and shorter dorsal fin. Now, in the North Pacific, off the coasts of the Americas, the orca population is split into three types. You have the residents, which are pods of whales that consistently visit the same areas, feeding mainly on fish and squid. They have close familial bonds, and they are some of the most studied marine mammals in the world. They are divided into three distinct communities, which are then broken down into clans and furthermore into pods. We won't get into the clans or the communities or the pods in this episode, but just know that they're all related in some way and um, they're broken down in categories. Now, next we have the transient or bigs orcas. They live in the same area as the resident orcas, but for some reason the two groups seem to avoid contact. Transients generally eat marine mammals like seals and are called transients because, unlike residents, they don't usually visit the same areas with any consistency. Some transients have been seen as far south as California and yet in subsequent years have been seen as far north as Alaska so they definitely do travel a lot. The last type um, found in the eastern north, northern Pacific is the offshore group. And unlike the residents and the transients, the offshore groups tend to form much larger pods. They can top out at about 200 individuals, although they are more likely to sit around the 20 to 75 individuals. Offshore individuals, um, also seem to be the smallest of the three groups found in this particular group. Less is known about this group of orcas, except that they are genetically distinct from the other two types. It is thought that they feed mainly on schooling fish as well. So they're found more in the uh, pelagic waters of the north um, eastern Pacific, whereas the transients and the uh, residents are found more closer to shore. These distinct populations are just two of many found throughout the world, both the North Pacific and the Antarctic. They are found off the coast of, uh, when I say they, um, orcas are found off the coast of all continents and many islands, so they have very different populations that, even though they live in the same area, might not mix. They're also highly adaptable. In South African waters, you have a part of that specializes in eating great white sharks, since their livers are so highly nutritious. In Argentina, though, there is a pod that specializes in hunting seals on the beach. The whales will voluntarily beach themselves, hoping to get a mouthful of seal before having to wiggle themselves back into the ocean. Worldwide, there are an estimated 50,000 individuals, although this is hard to confirm since they are spread over such a wide area. According to some recent studies um, into mitochondrial DNA, types B, C, and D, as well as Northern Pacific transients, should all be considered different species, uh, which more possible with more possibly coming to light as other populations are studied. 
that would mean that the type A's and the resident as well as the offshores would all be the same species albeit the residents and the offshores are genetically different and they seem to not mix as well. Now, I do want to touch on their intelligence. Most people talk about how intelligent they are. They're exceptionally good as mimics and problem solvers. When scientists threw a snowball at one, they were the orcas were then observed playing with bits of ice soon afterwards. They've also managed to skirt almost all of the techniques fishermen have used to try and stop the orcas from stealing their longline catches. And they're also known to communicate in specific dialects that are transferred from one generation to another, making it a form of culture. And the dialects are different between the transients and the residents, which is also very interesting. Now, without a doubt, they are very intelligent creatures. One thing I do want to address is that despite captive whales causing injuries and at least three human deaths, in the wild there has never been a reported death of a human. Humans aren't hunted and if allowed to live in the wild, the killer whales do not see humans as food and rarely as a threat. Now, what are your thoughts on these orcas shows being put on by various companies? Do you think they benefit the orcas by raising awareness or do you think the orcas deserve better? Let us know by either leaving a voice note on Spotify or on our website or you are welcome to send us an email to questions at thebiopodcast.com. Now it's time to look into a bit of a different side of zoology. It's now time for the technical section. Instead of exploring a particular animal, let's look into a concept, theory, idea, or event found within the animal kingdom. Today, let's look into the concept of animal intelligence. It is a very, or it is a conversation that underpins a lot of how we feel about animals, which affects the rights that animals are afforded in today's society. There are a lot of animals we automatically think of when we talk about intelligence. Some of the most common ones are corvids, which are your crows and ravens, cetaceans, like your dolphins and other toothed whales, like orcas and belugas, and your primates, like your chimpanzees and orangutans. But intelligence in the animal kingdom is definitely on a gradient. Intelligence is a very tough concept to quantify as it can't be identified as one particular thing. It can be learning a new skill like using tools, solving a problem like how to open a jar, or even communication and social organization. Communication can be defined as both intraspecies or within members of the same species, as well as interspecies between two individuals of different species. So the question becomes, how do you quantify any of these concepts? Let's look at them one at a time. If we only talk about intraspecies communications, then ants would be considered intelligent, termites, and basically any other social creature, and possibly most territorial creatures as well, as they communicate to let other individuals know that their territory is taken. When I talk about social creatures, there is a difference between organisms that require social situations like lions or whales, schools of fish or even flocks of parrots, and ones that, that don't require it but more tolerate social situations like woodlouse, for example. 
A lot of breeds of dogs are considered intelligent, especially Border Collies, because they can understand what we are saying. I personally have a nine-year-old pit bull, and somehow he knows when I'm speaking about him and knows enough Afrikaans to know if I'm talking to someone else about getting him a bone. He will act eager and excited regardless of which language I speak in. There have also been a number of videos going viral lately of dogs using a mat with buttons on it to communicate with their owners. Now, I would love to see this in person sometimes, as I'm always skeptical of anything I see on the internet. But if they are accurate, they definitely show an interesting level of intelligence that I personally wasn't aware of. If we look into being able to learn from others, then a number of animals have the ability to learn. A large number of mammals, for example, learn how to hunt or forage from their parents. Learning what food, uh, what foods are edible and which are dangerous is a must. Then there are examples of animals we don't associate with learning, or we don't associate with learning, or communication for that matter. Bees, to touch on the last topic, communicate the location of the best flowers, but they don't do it by speaking orally. Instead, they vibrate and do a specific dance to convey the information. Being able to convey information and figure out a way to do it that is definitely a sign, or figuring out a way to do it, is definitely a sign of intelligence. Back to learning, though. Bumblebees have been shown to learn solutions to problems and put them into action to get to their goal of nectar. In fact, some bumblebees had only had to be shown the solution once. And for a creature with a brain the size of a pinhead, that's pretty impressive. Now, as for using tools, none is obviously better than humans. We not only use tools, but we change our entire environment to suit our needs. But apart from this, tool usage has been found in primates. Corvids, which are your crows and ravens, have been known to use sticks to achieve their goals. Some in Tokyo have been seen dropping nuts in front of cars on the roadway so that the cars crack the nuts as they drive over them. They've also been spotted um, dropping stones in containers to raise the water level enough for them to drink some water. And at the most basic level, this behavior shows a rudimentary understanding of physics and volume. Otters regularly use tools to help them crack open shellfish. So much so, in fact, that some of them even have a favorite rock that they carry around with them. Elephants have been seen making tools out of branches to use as fly swatters. Some birds will use sticks to allow them to reach grubs under the bark of trees. Some animals will take tool usage a step further and will apparently self-medicate when they are sick. I don't mean to go, they're going to see a vet. I mean they will eat certain things or act in certain ways that a healthy organism doesn't in the hopes of clearing an infection. Let's look at some examples where animals ingest something. The first example I have is I will admit I am a bit suspicious of, but there is a policy, but there is a possibility. Ants have been uh, that have been exposed to a certain type of fungus will eat harmful substances. Substances that the ant wouldn't eat if it wasn't affected. On the surface, it looks like the ant is trying to clear that infection. 
But when it comes to the invertebrate world, there is this is tough to say because fungus have been known to commandeer invertebrates and turn them into zombies. So I'm cure I'm cautious to say that this is self-medicating, but for all I know it could be. I'd need to read the journal article in greater detail to be sure. There are reports of African bush elephants eating leaves of certain trees to induce labor. Kenyan women apparently brew tea from the same leaves, uh, for the same purpose actually. Jane Goodall has reported seeing chimpanzees eat certain leaves to induce vomiting, which cats and dogs have been known to do as well. Chimps have also been recorded eating a particular leaf, but they don't chew it, instead opting to swallow the leaf whole. The leaves are then have then been found in their fecal matter, undigested, which implies that they weren't eaten for their nutritional value. Instead, they were found to drag and help remove gastrointestinal parasites uh, as they pass through the digestive tract of the chimp. Furthermore, they were primarily consumed during the rainy season when parasitic infections are at their peak, which leads someone to believe that they are self-medicating for the parasites or to help them get rid of the parasites. To summarize though, Signs of intelligence can be found throughout the animal kingdom. The real question is how we measure and categorize it. There are other options that people think show intelligence, like brain size, but that would mean sperm whales are the most intelligent species on the planet, which, for all I know, maybe so. But how would you measure it? There is a concept of brain to body size ratio that might be another option. But since we're running out of time on this particular section, I wrote about that concept in today's field notes. So feel free to go and read that on the site. Remember, the site is thebiomepodcast.com. I do feel like I left a lot out on this topic so that I was able to condense it down to a mere 10 minutes. So if you have um, interest and any ideas, let me know how I can present longer form content that isn't limited to the constraints of this bite-sized episode. And I think that is where we will wrap up the technical section for today. If you're looking for some merch while helping out an incredible cause, go have a look at the site at www.thebiopodcast.com. They are all minimalist and unobtrusive. Uh, Every product is also eco-friendly with the majority of it being 100% cotton and the rest being recycled. I wear the hat almost every day to the gym. And that is the end of the show today. But before we head off, I just want to remind you of the trivia section or the trivia question for this episode. If an animal is crepuscular, what does that mean? Don't forget to send your answers to questions at thebiompodcast.com or you can go to www.thebiompodcast.com and use the contact form to get a shout out and show all of your friends just how knowledgeable you are. Also, make sure you visit the site and sign up for our newsletter so you don't miss a single episode. And feel free to read our field notes while you're there. Today's one was particularly interesting and it matches up with the, um, with the episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. They are always appreciated. I hope you have a great two weeks ahead of you and I will see you in the next episode. For now though, 
don't forget to ask questions. It's the foundation of science, after all. Thank you.